Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Literally an institution in this town of digging up old photos, old stories, collections, everything you can imagine under the sun about this great city. Greasy spoons, dives, old clubs. If you love this city, you're going to love it even more. Real people, real stories, real places. This is the Austin Found Podcast. Welcome back to the show. We appreciate you tuning in. I'm J.B. Hager. And I'm Michael Barnes. We're with the Austin American Statesman. This is the Austin Found Podcast. And you cannot talk about the history of Austin, how we got to where we are, without talking about environmentalists, conservationists. Tree huggers. Tree huggers, do-gooders. <laughs> you know, we, we need more of them. We need more of them as the city continues to grow. It's an ongoing thing, but it's, it's, it's really interesting to me to read about how we got here, because when when this stuff was taking shape, you know, I wasn't paying attention to it. In fact, uh, in 1988, you know, I would have been a, a sophomore in college. So I wasn't thinking about trees going up in Austin. I was thinking about shots on Sixth Street. <laughs> <laughs> but in 1988, a, a small group of people got together over a campfire and said, let's make a change. Yeah, there were a group of friends and they were worried about global warming and about the uh, destruction of the rainforests and also the, all the trees that were being bulldozed for new development in town. And they knew they couldn't really do anything about all those things, but they could plant one tree. And that's what they did. Yeah, it started so simple, which, <laughs> you know, a lot of uh, efforts do start that way. They, they each made a commitment to plant three trees. Right. One on their own property, one in their neighborhoods, and one in the larger community. And this group, which I'm shocked that in this day and age, here it is 2021, I've not heard the name growing up here of the nonprofit Tree Folks. They started Tree Folks, and it was something that has been extraordinarily successful and imitated around the country. They uh, learned as they went along, as as these DYI kind of nonprofits generally operate. Uh, they started with just a few scattered plantings, and and since then, uh, when I wrote the story, they had planted two point eight million trees. But I'm imagining it's well over three million now. Uh, they have uh, moved from just planting a few trees in, in their neighborhoods to planting along roads and in uh, places like retirement homes and, and parks and schools. But also a huge part of what they do now is placement trees. They are contracted to replace trees that are, are, are wiped out by a wildfire like the, the big one in Bastrop County in 2011. And also that Memorial Day flood along the Blanco River in 2015, and they go in and replace what was there. 
It is remarkable because I just I drove out to Bastrop fairly recently and you can see here. Here we are uh, a decade later, almost. You can see the burnout trees and you can see everything growing up underneath it. It's remarkable. It's it, I, the last time I was out there was the first time I felt like, yeah, it's really growing back. I mean, it'll be a generation before those are big trees. But um, what Tree Folks has done has really set the tone for how we can recover what we've lost in terms of of our treescape. During the the uh, the big drought that peaked in 2011, some scientists estimated that we had lost Texas had lost 20 percent of its trees. Yeah, we had about, what, five years of pretty heavy drought. We lost trees in our yard. You know, it, you think of trees as lasting forever for a very long time, but they're very water sensitive. And one of the things the tree folks folk <laughs> learned along the way was that you had to have somebody promise to water it for two years, even after you planted a sapling. So you can't just indiscriminately do the Johnny Appleseed thing and just plant them anywhere. Well, and the way around that is to plant bigger trees, which is bigger equipment, bigger budget. Also, they need more water, Mm -hmm. the bigger ones. Explain something to me. I'm a little slow sometimes, Michael, but you mentioned the the, the flood in in, in Blanco from 2015. And and when you talk about replacing from these kind of disasters, creek beds are one of them that they're really focused on. Does that have to do with erosion or, or... why such concentration on creek beds? Uh, several reasons. It's a great question. For one, it's where they can get trees close to water that's already there on a, on a high water table. Another reason is because these are places that are usually green belts and so accessible to the public. They don't do a lot of work on private land. Also, it's very important you, you'll notice if you drive anywhere or walk any hike anywhere in Texas, you know where the creeks are and the rivers are because there's a tree line. Because you can see from a distance, ah, that's where there's water. It's almost like its own safety mechanism. If you know the water's going to rise, you can look at yeah, those trees. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, that 2015 flood walked away ancient cypresses, you know, which are the signature trees along those hill country rivers and it, it's it was sad and i went down there uh not long after it and it, it, it just scoured all the banks i mean they were just and of course people lost their lives in it too it was a very sad flood yeah that one came on quick too from my recollection in the middle of the night too right yeah oh, and those are the worst because you don't know what's happening outside your window and we're not going to go to any details but people were caught in that flood in a way that they could not have pr- predicted on a holiday weekend as, as well. Tell us about city council member, Margaret Hoffman. Who is Margaret? Oh, the tree lady. She was fabulous. <laughs> Did people tree lady? Yeah, absolutely. She was an immigrant from Germany. She'd lived through World War II. She had a great sense of humor. She lived not far from us down here in South Austin, but her big push was trees. And so she put her body in front of bulldozers to prevent heritage trees from being torn up. She was the one who really, George Humphreys was another city council member that was really supportive. And also our friend, the flower salesman, Max Nofsinger. Do you don't remember Max Nofsinger? No, I don't. 
Oh my gosh. He was kind of this post-hippie guy who actually sold flowers at on street corners. This is a guy who's, you know, credited with really boosting from the city council chambers, the the awesome music scene and uh, all, all kinds of things. And he was uh, an environmentalist, as almost all of the politicians are these days. He was, along with Humphreys and uh, Margaret Hoffman, really big pushers of, of policy uh, for planting trees, watering trees, and also protecting older trees, uh, which tree folks got out of that business. You know, there's several nonprofits in town that protect older trees, uh, heritage trees, witness trees, which are heritage trees that are on sites where history happened, <laughs> you know, big things. There's a wonderful guy in town, Ted Eubanks, who's researching uh, uh, witness trees, and we'll come out with something about how to interpret them soon. I didn't realize that the tree folks at one time, and this is definitely a sign of changing Austin, they officed above uncommon objects on Congress. What was, what later became uncommon objects. Which is why it's a sign of things, you know, that iconic South Congress store has moved much farther south. Uh, oh, like much a- farther south. Onto Fort View, I believe, and along with some other businesses that were in, in this central area, and they just got priced out. But yeah, the tree folks started with just volunteers, and then they finally got a part-time uh, manager and then a full-time director. And, and now their their budget is well over a million a year. And like I said, they've become a model for cities across the country, which is it's just something. Let's pause and talk about that. That we have in the city, this marvelous example of how grassroots efforts can grow into something then that nobody could have predicted would become a, a, a true national model. We look at some of the social service nonprofits like Emancipet and uh, Mobile Loaves and Fishes. Everybody around the country is trying to figure out how they got it right. And in Austin, mostly it has to do with just ordinary citizens persisting and volunteering and making it is not big donors that make it happen here. Uh, in other cities, it's, well, somebody gives $50 million and it happens. But here it's people saying, no, it's, this is the right thing to do and we're going to do it. And then everybody else in the country goes, huh. <laughs> <laughs> Being a good person. How about that? I know I get, I really enjoy it. And I kind of kick myself uh, at times when I'm on Ladybird Lake, which I use a lot. And I see someone hiking down there with a watering can and some fertilizer or whatever on or a wheelbarrow full of stuff, just putting their time in, you know, those plants out on the pedestrian bridge over Ladybird Lake, like how it's tended to. And it's. Yeah, there's a little, there's a army of volunteers keeping Austin green. And as Mary Arnold said, I did a, a big comprehensive story on a documentary about how the green identity started in Austin. And it goes back way, way further back than you'd think. But Mary Arnold, who's kind of the godmother of the green movement here, she said, people come here and they look around and they go, wow, this is a beautiful place. And she said, I'm going to get choked up. She says, it took a lot of work to get us here and it's going to take a lot of work to keep it that way. Yeah, for sure. I know. I, I take great pride of it when, when people visit Austin for the first time. And that's usually one of the first things they say in in their first hour of being in Austin. It's like, 
wait a minute, it's so green. It's so green and beautiful. And uh, it figured into why this location was chosen for the capital of the Republic of Texas and why people continued to vote for it to be the capital of the state after, because it wasn't really assured that we would remain the capital until the late 19th century. So, Did you ever get your hands on one of their newsletters, Bark? Yeah, no, they had, they brought some to one of our, our interview sessions. Uh, we were at the former Austin Java on uh, Barton Springs Road, unfortunately gone. I love that place. Now our Ski Shores Cafe. Anyway. Is it? Oh, I haven't tried it out. Which is tied to Ski Shores on Lake Austin. Kind of that. Right. Lake, so the old Lake. Fowler family. Yeah. When you're that close to Barton Springs, it's almost like being at the lake. <laughs> Tell me more about this Bark newsletter. Well, it just was something for them to reach out to people and get better known. One of the things that early young nonprofits don't really get right away is they need to tell their story and they need to control that story a lot of the time. And so their newsletter is is fun and it is informative and you enjoy reading it even if you aren't that much into tree life. <laughs> Talk about individuals making a difference. One of those was a Crockett High School student who didn't like the look of Stasning Lane when that was fairly new, I'm guessing. Absolutely. And she wrote in that to the city, why can't you make it more beautiful? And what they'd done is, and with a lot of the, the uh, new roads during the 80s and 90s, even going back to the 70s, these big boulevards, they didn't bother to put in any kind of landscaping. It was just like, nope, we got to get people to the suburbs. So we're just going to bulldoze everything and get out there. But no, she, that student was, got people interested in, and tree folks because of her letter went to Stastny and planted trees from I-35 all the way out to Westgate Boulevard. Now, not all of those survived because that was very early on in their learning curve about the importance of following up, <laughs> but it was good to train them. They, they don't do roadways anymore. They're, they're doing, as we've said, parks and creeks and, and things, the green belts, things like that. Well, again, I was surprised that having grown up here, I wasn't familiar with the name tree folks. I am now. And I, here I am. I'm looking at treefolks.org. And you can join, you can get involved. They do have free trees annually. Like you can see if you qualify to come pick some up and plant them. You can volunteer, which sounds like a really good idea if you love this city and it's beautiful look to give back. And they have a young professionals group, which we're too old for, Michael. I know it. <laughs> way, me, way too old. <laughs> <laughs> it cuts off at 40. But that if that sounds like a good networking solution for you, I think this would be very, very good. Again, you can find that at treefolks.org. We love getting your emails, your feedback. We love you sharing the message about Austin Found, of course. Here's a recent email from Court. He says, Dear Michael and JB, thank you for this podcast. As a born and bred Texan who is now a Californian. Wait, there's one going the other way? <laughs> I haven't heard of such a thing. Almost 17 years as a Californian, but nostalgic and enjoy the knowledge of my favorite Texas city. Having moved to Georgetown from Southeast Texas as a kid, 
for three years in the early 90s. I savored every visit to Austin and made a point to visit every chance I could as a college student at SMU. Some of my fondest memories include walking 37th Street with my parents for Christmas to see the eye-opening light displays, being taken as a kid to Toad Hall Bookstore. You got to tell me about that one. And later visiting Magnolia Cafe to uh, nurse hangovers while visiting. Uh, we've <laughs> Part all of the Austin experience, definitely. Of course, my first and many subsequent visits to consistently incredible Central Market, which I yearn for to this day. Keep up the good work and maybe I'll see you around town one day. Best regards, Court. What a nice note. Tell me about Toad Hall Bookstore. Uh, it was a children's bookstore. Not having any children, I I, uh, I didn't go there often, but it was w- very well regarded. Um, my sister in Houston, who Valerie, it, it has a, a bookstore, an independent bookstore of her own. She gets me books. <laughs> and so I, I, for gifts for kids, so I never use Total. Uh, you're going to go there when you put out the um, coloring book version of Indelible Austin. <laughs> There needs to be one. You're right. Right? It would be fun to share the history of Austin with images like that. Well, I won't be the artist on it. I'm not much of a drawer. But you can get Indelible Austin Volumes 1 through 3 through book people. They uh, deliver and ship, and they also have curbside delivery. Thank you for tuning in to Austin Found. We appreciate it. You can reach out to me at jhager at statesman.com, or you can reach Michael. M. Barnes at statesman.com. We appreciate your feedback and input. Thanks for tuning in. This is Austin Found. Happy trails. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.